The 920 KBEC Podcast Network is presented by the Slow County Real Estate Podcast with House Swayze. Up-to-date information on the local real estate market on your time. New episodes weekly at the podcast link at 920kvec.com and wherever you get your podcasts. California DRE 01111911. There'll be days like this When there's no one complaining There'll be days like this Everything falls into place Like the flick of a switch Well, my mama told me There'll be days like this 306 on the Central Coast And a good Monday afternoon to you Welcome to Hometown Radio I'm Dave Congleton Finally up and running now On this Monday, July 6th, 2020 Hope you had a good weekend and a good fourth, a safe fourth. Did we have enough fireworks? I don't think so. I wish we could have had even more fireworks. We'll save that conversation for another time. Meanwhile, on this broadcast, we're with you all the way till 7 o'clock. I think we've got some pretty darn good subjects lined up for you today. Straight ahead on this broadcast. At 4.05, James Papp is the chair of the Cultural Heritage Committee in San Luis Obispo. That will likely change tomorrow. He's being booted. He says he's being treated unfairly. City Council begs to differ. We'll talk. At 5.05. Woo! I should just spend the whole hour reading the Facebook posts that activist Oceano CSD member Cynthia Replogo was getting. Holy cow. Uh, We'll talk. Mostly we're going to listen. I want Cynthia to have a chance to defend herself. And then Michael Aaron Woody joins us during the 6 o'clock hour, a bona fide Republican, also part Native American. I'm going to give him a chance to react to uh, Trump's speech Friday night at Mount Rushmore. It is a Dave Congleton show, always your hometown radio talk show. I know what you're thinking. That's a pretty good, darn good lineup. I'm glad I'm listening. I'm glad you are, too. First up, I guess there's a theme today, because we're going to both begin and end with a nod to the event last Friday in South Dakota. Yes, there's Mount Rushmore and all sorts of reasons to go visit. But let us not remember that, let us not forget, rather, that that's also the Black Hills of South Dakota. And that's a very rich part of our history. But it's also a controversial part of our history, as is the whole larger subject of the relationship between the U.S. government and the Indians during the second half of the 1800s. Always pleased to have conversation with historian and author Jim Gregory. He had a very uh, detailed post on Facebook that really touched me, and I invited him to join in the conversation. I'm delighted he's here with us now. Here's Jim Gregory. Hey, Jim. Hello, Dave. Good to, good to hear your voice. Uh, thanks for joining us again. And, and I should have asked this when we talked earlier today. Have you ever been to the Black Hills? Have you spent time there? I have not. Uh, I've uh, uh, been to other sites in America, but but uh, that's one of my definitely want to go to places, uh, including uh, I'd like to visit uh, the uh, the so-called Custer battlefield in Montana. Yeah, I've done a lot of a lot of reading about that subject, and he is endlessly fascinating. Well, I, 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 I got to uh, the last page of one uh, 
cuss your biography, I think it was Nathaniel Philbricks, and he just let drop in one of the closing paragraphs after 400-odd pages that the the Crow people who live uh, nearby call the, the park rangers their ghost herders because there are so many sightings of uh, allegedly of, of cavalrymen and uh, Lakota uh, who are kind of still on a battlefield. I thought that was pretty cool. And I've been there. It's um, it's worth visiting. Yeah. I want to I start the conversation about the Black Hills with one word, and that word is gold, because based on my limited reading, gold played a major factor in what happened in the Black Hills of South Dakota. Am I right? Well, it, it even it goes back farther than that. Cortez is supposed to have said he came to Mexico in 1519. We Spanish have the disease of the heart that can only be cured by gold. And then a few years later, uh, Pizarro in the Inca people uh, continued the tradition. He uh, held the Atahualpa, the Inca in the, uh, emperor, as, as hostage, ordered his people to fill the room with gold, which they did. He killed him anyway. And, of course, Coronado was uh, searching for the uh, the seven cities of gold in the American Southwest. So it's it's a pervasive theme as far back as the 1500s, and it it bears on uh, the Lakota people, it, it, it bears on the Cheyenne, and even bears on the Cherokee. Hmm. As I recall my history, the uh, the various tribes were promised the Black Hills. That was a treaty we had signed. And then, as we have been known to do, we broke the treaty once gold was discovered. Yeah, the Treaty of Fort Laramie in 1868 uh, basically ceded the Black Hills to the the tribes, including the Lakota, the Cheyenne, the Arapaho, the Kiowa, uh, for all time. And then, of course, in in 1874, gold was discovered there. There was a geological expedition uh, led into the Black Hills, and the the uh, the military uh, component of that expedition was, of course, led by. Uh, George Armstrong Custer, then a lieutenant colonel, and that was the uh, that was the event that kind of uh, uh, publicized the discovery of gold. And at that point, uh, prospectors, miners began uh, pouring into the Black Hills, and that's when tensions began uh, between the Native Americans and uh, the the, uh, the soldiers in the area. Of course, I, I assume that President Grant just stepped in and said. Okay, we're going to have to take this land because it has gold, but not to worry. We are going to buy the land from you and give you the compensation that you justly deserve. I'm pretty sure that's what happened, right, Jim? That, yeah, and it came down to it. Uh, that payment was uh, upheld by the Supreme Court. I think in 1942, it was then $17 million. It was uh, upheld again uh, by the Burger Court in, I think, 1980. But it's accumulated. It's now, I think, around 106 million. But the the people there uh, don't want the money. They they want the Black Hills. Why is the Black Hills so important to Native Americans? I wish I could come up with an equivalent. You'd have to take uh, the Mecca, the Vatican, uh, and kind of roll it all into one. That place uh, has been. Uh, uh, settled by indigenous people as, uh, as far back as 12,000 years ago. And it's also, also ha- always had kind of a deep spiritual significance that's been handed down from one people to the other. There's a, there's a lot of different uh, uh, sides to it, but in uh, Agbalasu uh, cosmology, uh, the Black Hills is where their ancestors came from. 
and their ancestors were, were uh, living in the stars. They were star people. And the Black Hills is where they came to Earth. Uh, and like the, the Chumash people, uh, uh, the, uh, the Lakota were very in tune with the constellations. They were they were astronomers uh, in their own light, uh, and that is their their origin place. And then, of course, that would lead to <laughs> one of the most popular science fiction movies of all time. Uh, in the, the Lakota people, ancestors came from the stars, and then Steven Spielberg would make Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and right. uh, Devil, Devil's Butte, which right. is part of the Black Hills, that's where the the, uh, the little people come down to meet us. It's in the middle of nowhere. I, I hit all yeah. these spots on a single trip, and it's in the middle of nowhere, but it was well worth the drive. Jim Gregory on this broadcast. So in the 1870s, when gold was discovered, what happened to the Indians? Were they pushed out of the Black Hills? They uh, were. Uh, that would take a while. It would take. It would take a, a, a long period of fighting. But basically, they would eventually uh, be pushed onto a reservation. But that would come after um, uh, the 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 fight at the Little Bighorn, and that's where Custer uh, was uh, uh, supposed to scout. There were three columns of soldiers heading into uh, the Black Hills, and they were supposed to intercept and bring back. Uh, some Native Americans uh, bring them back to the reservation. Uh, of course, they didn't know they were supposed to be on the reservation because this was the Black Hills. This was their home that had been promised to them by the Treaty of Fort Laramie. Well, Custer, uh, he, he found the encampment, and instead of doing what he was supposed to do, was, which was to wait until the other soldiers came up, he attacked us on, I think, June 25, 1876. And we all know he managed to get uh, about 260 men under his immediate command uh, massacred. Uh, we think there were about 3,000 uh, Native American soldiers there that day, so he was thoroughly outnumbered. Uh, he lost uh, two brothers, Boston and Tom. Tom had won two Medals of Honor during the Civil War. Uh, he lost uh, John Ke- uh, excuse me, Calhoun, Daniel Calhoun, I think his name was, but could be wrong, who was his brother-in-law. And he, he lost his nephew, Audie Reed. So the Custer family took a terrific hit at the Battle of the Little Bighorn. And that was ostensibly a Native American victory, but of course that was, that was the beginning of the end because there was, uh, there was no way that, uh, the American army was going to take that line down. So eventually that would lead to them being uh, brought back to the reservation. Right. And then the other part about the Black Hills, though, is that I guess Mount Rushmore, and I really don't want to get into a debate about Mount Rushmore, but I think we should just remind folks that Mount Rushmore is carved on the side of a mountain that the Indians considered to be the most sacred in the Black Hills, adding further fuel to the fire. Yeah, and it it was controversial uh, from the beginning. I think the, it began the carving began uh, in the late 1920s was finished uh, in in 1941. And uh, there is, if I can recommend a novel, there's a terrific novel uh, called uh, Black Hills. The author's name is Dan Simmons, and the premise is a young Lakota, a little boy, sees uh, the, the little bighorn fight. He, he grows up and becomes uh, uh, part of the work crew for the carving of Mount Rushmore, uh, which he would just as soon blow up. So I'll, I'll just kind of leave it at that. But it's a fascinating, uh, it's a very suspenseful novel, but it also tells, uh, reveals a lot about the meaning of the Black Hills. All right, our opening guest on Hometown Radio is author and historian Jim Gregory. 
We'll pick up the conversation as we continue. I'm Dave Congleton on AM 920 FM 96.5 News Talk, KVEC. A couple of weeks ago, we played you part one of that local radio drama. And in fairness, I wrote it. And the most beautiful woman. Well, tomorrow we have part two for you. Also tomorrow, Paul Lewis checks in. He wants to talk about NASCAR. He used to be on a NASCAR team. Uh, Dr. Larry Martinez will be back with us on Wednesday. I think my brother Bruce is also going to check in. Uh, we'll see. Bottom of the hour, it's uh, California Headline News. We are back with uh, historian and author Jim Gregory. Mount Rushmore and the Black Hills have been in the news a lot lately because of President Trump's visit and this ongoing debate. I'm just trying to give you more of a historical perspective with Jim about the ongoing battles between the federal government and the Indians, particularly in South Dakota. And Jim, as we continue with you, I think most Americans our general age have a sense of Custer and the Little Big Horn. I would submit that all, many of them have also heard of Wounded Knee, but they probably don't fully understand what Wounded Knee is about. I'd ask you to educate us, please. There's 14 years between uh, Little Big Horn and Wounded Knee. Uh, what happens is that the uh, the uh, Lakota uh, eventually bought, brought back to a reservation. There's one at Pine Ridge. There's one at Standing Rock, uh, which is where the spiritual leader of those people, uh, Sitting Bull, uh, was confined. In 1877, another leader, uh, Crazy Horse, uh, would be uh, killed uh, while in the custody of soldiers. Uh, so he's gone. Sitting Bull, for a time, would, of course, uh, uh, be part of Buffalo Bill's Wild West show and tour of the world with Buffalo Bill. Uh, but he would come back, uh, quit the show, come back. He, by the way, became great friends with Annie Oakley, uh, and come back to the, uh, the reservation, uh, with his people. But then, uh, what began to happen throughout, uh, the West and Southwest was a, a religious revival called, uh, the Ghost Dance. And if it was felt that if Native Americans followed this faith, uh, it was a Paiute, a holy man named Wavoka, who brought it to the Native Americans of, of America. If they danced the dance and they followed the the, uh, the ceremonies of the ghost dance, that eventually the white people would disappear and the buffalo would reappear and they could resume their old way of life. Well, this was seen as, as uh, pretty subversive by the uh, military authorities and the civil authorities who were running the reservations. And tensions began to accelerate where Sitting Bull was at Standing Rock. And he was suspected of being a ghost dance leader there, which he wasn't. He didn't have anything to do with it, but he still had. His name had a lot of power. So in December of 1890, he was about to be placed under arrest uh, by some Native American policemen. Uh, a young man uh, tried to intervene. Uh, his rifle went off, and in retaliation, one of the policemen shot Sitting Bull and killed him. And nearby was uh, was one of Sitting Bull's horses, who'd been a trick horse from the Buffalo Bill Show, and had been trained to rear at the sound of gunshots, uh, which is what he did uh, when Sitting Bull passed away. Um there was a, another leader named Bigfoot who was absolutely terrified at how tense conditions were at uh, at Standing Rock. So he led a small band of Lakota toward another agency nearby, uh, which is more famous today, I think, Pine Ridge. Yeah. Uh, 
they were uh, intercepted. It was in the dead winter of 1890. They were intercepted by soldiers of the uh, 7th Cavalry. They agreed to come in. Uh, they passed overnight on what was to become a battlefield the next day. Uh, and then when the soldiers tried to confiscate the Native Americans' arms, very similar to what had happened before, uh, a gun went off, and the 7th Cavalry just opened fire with everything they had, including two, uh, two Hotchkiss guns, which are 42-millimeter howitzers, field howitzers. And uh, uh, they may have killed as many as uh, 300 uh, Lakota. Most of them were women and children. Uh, 24, I think, uh, troopers were killed in the process, probably several of them by friendly fire. But uh, it was uh, uh, something that uh, marked the, the real ending of the frontier, but it was something also that uh, remains a, a terrific source of pain uh, even today. I believe the numbers were something like 250 men, women, and Lakota children were killed. Yeah, yeah, the numbers vary anywhere from 150 to 300. They're, they're never, uh, uh, you know, uh, never going to be sure exactly how many, but, uh, it was, uh, it was ghastly. It, uh, finally, I think, uh, historians have stopped referring to it as the Battle of Wounded Knee because that's not, that's not what happened at all. Uh, and as a result of Wounded Knee, what happened, Jim? Did any reform change come about? The, the, uh, uh, the process uh, of uh, Americanization, which had been something a policy ever since George Washington in 1796, would in fact accelerate, and uh, the children of the Lakota would be brought to Indian schools like Carlisle in the East, an increasing attempt to to make them, uh, you know, more like white people. So that would result in tremendous intergenerational conflict, uh, and of course. Uh, there, there would be a lot of other factors. Native Americans are still susceptible uh, to disease, uh, even as they are today. Uh, so that would play uh, 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 havoc among the peoples on the reservation. And, of course, uh, the, the poverty there uh, hasn't changed. If anything, it's, it's gotten worse over the last uh, 100 years or so. Poverty and illness, both physical yeah. and mental, across the board. <laughs> Yeah, even locally, we uh, archaeologists estimate that there were uh, probably about ten thousand Chumash living from Ventura to San Luis Obispo when the Europeans came. And I think I read in the census of nineteen ten uh, there were only uh, ninety two identified Chumash people in that census. So, uh, they uh, were uh, one of the one of the big killers was pneumonia, uh, syphilis. Uh, and in 1852, there was a horrific cholera outbreak in San Luis Obispo, and that killed probably 60 or 70 of the Chumash people who lived in what was then Chinatown. All right, we're here with uh, author and historian Jim Gregory, talking about the Native Americans in the Black Hills of South Dakota. We'll pick up that conversation as we continue. I'm Dave Convict, we're live, we're local. This is Hometown Radio. We're doing the uh, 4 o'clock hour. James Papp is the chair of the uh, City Cultural Heritage Committee. I think that's going to change. It looks like uh, the city council is going to bounce him tomorrow night. We'll give uh, Dr. Papp a chance to explain what's going on. Meanwhile, we are continuing our conversation with historian and author Jim Gregory. His website is royalgrandehistory.com, 
royalgrandehistory.com. Check out the website, buy a book, support a local author. Since South Dakota has been in the news so much uh, the last few days with Mount Rushmore debate and the fireworks and President Trump's speech, I wanted to talk with Jim for a little bit about South Dakota and the Upper Plains in general and our relationship with the Indians, particularly during the 1800s. But now, here we go, uh, Jim, as we're back with you on the Stolberg Law KVC text line. And a listener writes, every place in the world was taken from some other people. The Lakota took that land from other Indians. So where do you stop? Who gets to make that decision? Is that a fair question? Oh, sure it is. But I think that uh, a couple of things. One, these these are, are fellow American citizens. And two, we have uh, taken, uh, in terms of foreign policy, we've taken a very strong stand against uh, things like what happened to the Native Americans. That's what American troops were doing in Kosovo in the 1980s. They were preventing what was then called ethnic cleansing uh, as uh, Muslims were being forced off their land uh, and put into camps. It was kind of eerily similar to what happened in the western United States. And we sent American troops there to stop it. All right. And also, third, we we made treaties. We should honor our treaties, shouldn't we? Isn't that part of the deal? Yeah. There was an <laughs> earlier one uh, that we uh, kind of blew it on, too, that the, the big treaty was the Fort Laramie Treaty of 1868. There was an earlier Fort Laramie Treaty that uh, uh, promised land along what would become the Bozeman Trail uh, to the Native Americans there. And darn if we didn't have, there are two uh, uh, men buried in the Rio Grande District Cemetery who got caught up in in that mess. And that, uh, once again, uh, what happened is that uh, the land, it's in Montana, parts of Wyoming, was promised to the tribes living there. And darn if they didn't discover gold there in 1863. So uh, there was a trail uh, carved into the gold country, and the uh, Indians there, Cheyenne and Sioux, primarily began uh, picking off the gold miners who asked for uh, protection from the federal government. So in went the uh, the cavalry, and this was known as the, the, the Powder River Expedition. And the leader has kind of a connection to San Luis County, and it was Patrick Connor, and he was part of uh, Harry Love's California Rangers, and this is the group that hunted down and, and killed the outlaw Joaquin Marietta, who's uh, said to have stayed overnight in San Luis Obispo at least once. Uh, but now he was a, a, a Union Army commander. This was during the Civil War. So he led an expedition. He promised to kill every Indian he, male he found over the age of 12. It didn't work out that way. Uh, uh, two, the two Royal Granny soldiers, one was with the Kansas Regiment, his name was Dowell. One was with the Missouri Regiment, his, his name was Keown, and they later became farmers in the Royal Granny Valley. But they were young soldiers on this Powder River expedition. And the first thing that Connor did was to split the expedition up into two columns. So Keown and Dowell were under the command of another officer uh, named Cole. The first night out, Colonel Cole set up camp halfway in between the camp of uh, Red Cloud and Sitting Bull. Big mistake. Hmm. When Sitting Bull found out that there were soldiers nearby, one historian said that the Lakota warriors, uh, to quote him, uh, fell on them like angry badgers. The only thing that saved Dowell and Keown and permitted them to someday become farmers in the Rio Grande Valley was, and people who live in the Midwest are... are, uh, this should sound pretty familiar. What started out as kind of a balmy fall day, the temperature dropped 70 degrees 
in 24 hours. And what had begun as a balmy day was a blizzard by nightfall. So the Native Americans just said, enough of this, we're just going to go home. So they were temporarily, uh, the uh, the horse soldiers were temporarily relieved, but a week later they were attacked again. And uh, they, uh, they didn't form a circle of wagons, they formed a square. And this time it was the Cheyenne leader, Roman Nose, uh, who was attacking the column. Uh, but there was a guest appearance by a young Lakota warrior. And as a historian, uh, I would have almost given an arm to have been there with poor Private Dowell and Private Keown. Because this young fellow rode up and down the line of, of wagons uh, uh, on what was called a dare ride. And he was daring the soldiers to kill him. Um, but they couldn't. They blasted away at him because he, he had what he they call medicine. He had a little stone on a leather thong tied behind his ear that he thought protected him from the bullets. And, and, and they did uh, because Roman Nose, I guess, got kind of envious. And he rode out on a dare ride of his own, and his horses immediately shot out from under him. But the young man that Keown and Adele saw that day was Crazy Horse. Uh, so he had the honor of being attacked by Sitting Bull, Roman Nose, and Crazy Horse on that expedition. I don't know if you can call that an honor or not. But And he, uh, survi- and he survived. He, he survived. <laughs> they had to do it, though. They went out as cavalry, and they came back to Fort Laramie as infantry. Because to survive, they had to eat their own horses. So it was uh, a thorough disaster. Uh, and... Uh, uh, two Royal Grandy settlers uh, uh, saw a crazy horse and lived to tell about it. Uh, we're here with historian and author Jim Gregory. His website is royalgrandehistory.com. So here are the themes that I'm picking up on. One, the relationship between the federal government and Native Americans in the second half of the 1800s. Uh, treaties made and then treaties broken. Two, a lot of decisions made for the search of for gold, three, or the desire to take land. Cotton also was a part of this, isn't it, Jim? Yeah, both gold cotton. and cotton figured in the in the uh, removal of the five civilized tribes in what historians call the Trail of Tears. Gold was discovered in Georgia on Cherokee land in 1829. So that started a, a massive incursion of uh, gold seekers into Cherokee territory. And then uh, there was also tremendous interest in acquiring the land that these people lived on. And that was uh, kind of an offshoot of the European Industrial Revolution. Uh, There was tremendous demand in France, Belgium, and England for southern cotton. Uh, There's only so much cotton, though, you can grow in places like Virginia and North Carolina. The land that the five civilized tribes lived on, Georgia, Alabama, parts of Mississippi. It's vast. It's black soil. It's ideal for for cotton cultivation. So uh, while the prospectors were were looking for gold, uh, what uh, cotton planters really wanted was land. And among them was uh, was Jackson, who became a very wealthy man. Uh, I think at uh, uh, the high point he had 161 slaves. Uh, so there was tremendous interest in driving these people out, uh, so that land could come under cotton cultivation. Eventually, that's what happened, beginning with a Choctaw under Jackson and ending with uh, the the Cherokee, probably the most famous tribe, all of them taken to uh, march to Oklahoma. I think in Cherokee, they left in uh, 10 bunches of about 1,000 people each, and 4,000 of them died 
along the way to what is now Oklahoma. Uh, the casualty rate was was pretty similar for the Choctaw, uh, the first people who were taken out. So it was uh, uh, that land though was was coveted both for gold and for its immense agricultural potential. So you're a longtime history teacher. How much of this did high school students get? back in your day, and how much do you think they're getting today? Do we really teach our students about Native Americans? I think it's, I think it's getting more balanced, uh, and it's not at the expense. Uh, as a teacher, I never tried to tear anybody down. There's a lot of things about Andrew Jackson uh, that I kind of admire, including uh, his propensity for uh, uh, defending women. Uh, that's another story altogether. But uh, there is, uh, it's not a matter of, of tearing people down as, as much as it is, I think, as telling a fuller story. Uh, and the, the fuller story we tell, it's, it's about Americans. Uh, I don't know how many people realize that uh, local Filipino Americans, for example, uh, after Pearl Harbor, they filled uh, almost instantly two complete infantry regiments, so one of them trained at Camp San Luis Obispo, and they turned out to be superb soldiers. Uh, I, I learned a little bit about, uh, say, another example that pertains to local history might be the 442nd Regimental Combat Team, uh, which is made up of Japanese Americans. We know so much more about that. So to me, it, it's it's about expanding and enriching. Uh, there's so many good stories to tell, and... and uh, uh, again, it's not about tearing people down to me. It's about revealing new stories and making the history uh, richer than it already was before. And again, I'm not looking to be political, but the president in his speech Friday night kept making references to history and preserving our history and saluting our history. But now I'm hearing you tell the darker side of our history, Jim, and I'm wondering if a lot of Americans want to hear these kind of stories, or do they just want to hear the more positive things? Here's the deal. Dave, do you know why my wife married me? Uh, it's because, I, you're it's tell because me. I'm, I'm perfect. <laughs> I'm absolutely a perfect human being. And if you believe that, I've got a bridge to show you. You know where. Yeah. Uh, my, my wife loves me. Not... <laughs> uh, not because I'm perfect, but she loves me in spite of my faults. I'm a flawed human being. She understands that. She accepts that. That, if I can use the, the marital comparison, is, is a deeper, more meaningful, more complex kind of love. And that's what's made our marriage last for 34 years, is that we accept those weaknesses in each other. Uh, I, uh, I've taken my, uh, my sons to Gettysburg. I've taken my high school students to Cobell Samara, which is the American cemetery above Omaha Beach. Uh, and uh, I want them to understand how proud I am of my country. But I think my love of country is tempered by the mistakes we've made, too. And that makes it, to me, um, my love more authentic, more durable, more lasting. I like that answer. Jim Gregory on this broadcast, historian and author extraordinaire. Check out his website at com. We'll come back for a final segment. We're live. We're local. This is Hometown Radio. There's one thing I particularly want to stress as we head into the last segment with historian and author Jim Gregory, website at com. And I, I have uh, told you this over the years, is um, South Dakota and Western North Dakota, 
but the Dakotas are really a fascinating place. And if you haven't been, it is well worth the drive or however you would get there. The Badlands and Rapid City and Mount Rushmore, uh, the Crazy Horse Monument remains a work in progress. But there is um, there's such rich richness of history in that southwest part of uh, South Dakota. And I have long said that the two places every American needs to visit are the Grand Canyon and Mount Rushmore. So I just, I don't want anyone misunderstanding the purpose of this segment. But you, you peel back that curtain and you realize that thousands of people have suffered over the years in the Badlands. And what they have in common is that they're all Native Americans. Uh, the other example I want to get to, Jim, with you, um, I don't know much of Sand Creek. That was, what, 1864? That's right, yeah. I was... Uh, uh I, I spent an inordinate amount of time in cemeteries. But, uh, at Royal Grand East Cemetery, I found a grave of, uh, of uh, a man uh, who, uh, fortunately, he missed that, but he served in one of the outfits. His name was Harrison Bissell, and he's Company G, 1st Colorado Cavalry, which was a regular Army unit. In 1862, they, they were commanded by this big fellow named John Chivington. Uh, they had one, it's called the Gettysburg of the West, which is a slight exaggeration, but Chippington had led this guy who had settled in Royal Grandy Harrison to sell and his troopers to a big victory at a place called Glorieta Pass in New Mexico. Uh, and he would uh, thoroughly and humiliate a Confederate cavalry detachment and send them uh, packing back to Texas. So it was a brilliant victory. Unfortunately, uh, Chippington was also a commander uh, two years later at Sand Creek. Uh, and this is what happened. There had been some, uh, this was in Colorado, and there had been some Native American attacks on settlers, including some very brutal ones. And uh, Chivington uh, assumed command of the 1st Colorado Cavalry, which included the cell, which is a regular Army unit, but also the 3rd Volunteer Colorado Cavalry, which was made up of 100-day volunteers. They, they were green soldiers. And he went off in a search of uh, a camp that was led by a Cheyenne named Black Kettle. Uh, and uh, he stopped off at a place called Fort Lyon, and there Harrison DeSalle departs the story as he stayed behind at Fort Lyon while the rest of his company went with Chivington to find Black Kettle. But the story picks up because the scout who led them to Black Kettle's camp, which is about three hours southeast of Denver, was James Beckworth. And James Beckworth was uh, the uh, scout and trapper mountain man who, in 1848, was carrying the mail from Rancho Nipomo north to Monterey hmm. when he discovered the bodies of the Reed family who'd been murdered at Mission San Miguel. And he rode hellbent for leather up to Monterey and uh, talk about name-dropping. The uh, young officer he reported the murders to at the Presidio was a young lieutenant named William Tecumseh Sherman. Hmm. So it was it was uh, Beckworth who helped to guide unwillingly, I might add, Chivington and his men to the Sand Creek encampment. And Black Kettle uh, was uh, there, I think, with about 300 Native Americans. Uh, again, they were uh, assumed to be those who had uh, committed the murders of uh, local farmers. Uh, that has never been established. Uh, but 
they they fell on uh, the Native Americans in circumstances very similar to uh, to what it what would happen someday at Wounded Knee. But there was one soldier. He was a commander of D Company. His name was Silas Sewell, and he and another officer friend of his uh, named Wincoop had become quite attached to the Cheyenne. In, including many members of Black Kettle's camp. Uh, so when the fighting began, uh, Lieutenant Sewell turned to his men and ordered them to stand down and to, to hold their fire. Yeah. But, but the the 100-Day Wonders, the third, uh, uh, the 3rd Regiment, the Volunteer Cavalry, they opened up with everything they had, uh, and uh, they shot down men, women, and children. They later mutilated the bodies. There was another detachment of uh, uh, the uh, regular cavalry G Company, which was Lucelle's company, and I found an account by a soldier who served in that company who was who was absolutely furious at what the volunteers were doing. He said, "We we wanted to turn our cannon loose on the volunteers, not on the Cheyenne." Uh, but they kind of sabotaged it because the, the uh, mountain houses they had, uh, the Native American survivors later reported that uh, many, there were many artillery shells exploding in the air. What we think happened is that they deliberately cut the fuses short because they couldn't stand what they were seeing. So the, the artillery shells exploded harmlessly over the Native Americans. Eventually, uh, uh, Again, we'll never know the exact numbers. It may be 150, it may be 200. Again, it was mostly women and children were killed um, by uh, Shivington's men that day. Sewell, who had been the commander of D Company, was outraged. There was a congressional inquiry, and he was uh, the main witness at that inquiry. Uh, and Shivington was about to be court-martialed when he, he resigned from the Army. Right. Uh, in fact, he would have a town name for him. Uh, Sewell, uh, after he'd gone to Washington and given his testimony, uh, would be shot to death on the streets of Denver by people we think were friends of John Chivington. There is a Chivington in Colorado today. But uh, every year on the anniversary of Wounded Knee, uh, there is what's called a spirit run. And young Cheyenne athletes, teenagers, uh, embark on a cross-country run that... that uh, ends at the Denver Cemetery. And at the cemetery, uh, they place small tribute stones on top of the tombstone of Silas Sewell, the soldier who tried to seek justice for them. So oh. that's a nice tribute. That's uh, very and, nice tribute. On the Stolberg line, on the Stolberg Law KBC text line, John says, Dave, I was really, I was literally just thinking that I need to go to the Dakotas after hearing this wonderful segment. Go, John. I just wouldn't go in the summertime. Steve writes in, thank you and your guest for the history. Dark or not needs to be known. Perfect or not. Our past may not have been perfect, but Mr. Gregory has helped identify this. I attended a powwow near Custer Battlefield and was treated well. We are all one. Any reaction to the second text? I mean... You you got to get to Custer. You got to see that battlefield. I have to. I absolutely have to. Because you stand uh, up there and you look over and you're you're thinking, what the hell was Custer thinking? <laughs> I mean, really. You, you're you just, right about the Dakotas too, because it just it just struck me that uh, young Theodore Roosevelt, his mother and his wife died on the same day. That's right. And that's where he went to heal himself. He went off to the Dakotas and became a cowboy, uh, and returned. 
to become Theodore Roosevelt that, that, that we know. So there is something special about the place. I look forward to the postcard that you're going to send me when Paul, that you got happens. Uh, Elizabeth is also texting in that she is enjoying the conversation. Is there a, a, a book in particular that you might recommend people read if they want to know more about the general topic? The one, uh, it's, it's an old one, but it's a good one, uh, it is, is the classic uh, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee by uh, Texas historian uh, D. Brown. Uh, there's a wonderful biography of Red Cloud uh, that uh, uh, that just came out. I can't grab the name right now, but it is. Oh, darn it! I can't. I can't grab it. There's another uh, good one on Quanta Parker, who is the leader of the Comanches, and I learned so much from that because of of all the Native American tribes that are kind of cliches in the movie only the comanche actually fought from horseback uh so they were they were superb horsemen and they kind of intimidated all the other tribes uh but uh the uh, the biographies of corner parker the biography of red cloud and of course d brown's book are, are all really good sources to start and don't forget to start your search on jim gregory's website aurorograndehistory.com where he has any number of fine local history books that he has written over the years available for sale and support your local authors and historians. Jim Gregory, we always appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us. I give you 30 seconds for a final thought. Um, I just hope that uh, that uh, someday I can go to these places because Custer Battlefield is definitely on my list of places to see, although not at nighttime. I've uh, been to Gettysburg, which also is haunted, and there's no way I would stay on that battlefield overnight. <laughs> I'd scream like a little girl. <laughs> All right, Jim, thank you for your time. Off we go. We've got ABC Radio News. Craig has the very latest in time saver traffic and weather together. Then let's find out what's going on with uh, James Papp and the city of San Luis Obispo. They're trying to get rid of him. What's up with that? He's drawing parallels to Ken Schwartz. We're live. We're local. This is Hometown Radio. The 920 KBEC Podcast Network is presented by the Slow County Real Estate Podcast with House Swayze. Up-to-date information on the local real estate market on your time. New episodes weekly at the podcast link at 920kvec.com and wherever you get your podcasts. California DRE 01111911.